I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I am your host, Justin Bua, better known as the Monominous Bua. And <laughs> we are here with Lizzie Dastin, uh, Partners in Crime. We have a podcast called Art Attack, and this is our 97th episode. Can you believe that? 97 That's episodes. That's amazing. And it we, is such an archive. It, it's I'm super proud of that. And we have never talked about graffiti unto itself. It's time. Yeah, it's time. It's weird, right? Because here we have a movement. Okay, guys, everybody graffiti, 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 graffiti. This is a movement that is the longest lasting artistic movement in the history of art. Think about all the other art movements. Dadaism, Fauvism, Pointillism. Futurism, super fast. Yeah, futurism, (laughs) like beep, beep, gone. What happened? Cubism. Look, there's people who call themselves Cubists, but as a movement, a collective movement, it's not growing, evolving, changing, efflorescing, or metamorphosizing at all. Graffiti is. Graffiti, which became, which folded into street art, is still going. We're talking about a movement, you can argue it's prehistoric, right? You can argue that graffiti started in the cave paintings in Lascaux, France. No, we're not getting into that. In Pompeii, no! <laughs> in, at hieroglyphics, in the tombs, uh-uh! Stop it! Stop it! I don't want to have that conversation because it's too esoteric to get into. Graffiti, and I don't even honestly, I, I, and no disrespect, Philly, I love all y'all Philly folks, but... Cornbread, 19, you know, when he was he was 60s. getting up in the 60s. I don't even want to say graffiti is there. I'm going to give it real. I'm going to give it real. Graffiti came from New York City. New York City by a bunch of kids. This is the craziest thing about the movement. Not only do you have the longest movement in the history of the world, you have a movement that was solely created by a group of clandestine kids. Oh, that is such a good point. And I've never thought about that, but you're right. They're just kids who had a vision to write their name. Yeah. You know, they were, people have been writing their names since the beginning of time, politically, whatever motivation it was, hobos on the, on the, on the freight cars. But this is different. Kids are writing their name. You got tacky, you know, you got Tacky 183, you got Tracy 168. They're writing their names and they're writing the streets that they're from. And then the names start to become more involved, understood, and it becomes, you start getting throw-ups, which are quick little bubble letter names. You start, you know, you're getting tags and then you're getting, you know, pieces that are, that are coming out of that. But it all starts with a bunch of kids from New York City, specifically the Bronx. Manhattan makes it, Brooklyn takes it, Queens is the whack. Staten Island, soft and smiling, Bronx bugging out on crack. <laughs> that's where it's happening, in the Bronx, by a bunch of kids. And that's it's where graffiti starts. upsetting that you don't have any passion about this subject. But uh, <laughs> so you say it comes from kids who have a vision, and yep. that is totally true. But it also comes from kids who have very limited access in other aspects of their lives. And I think that is an integral piece of graffiti because what encourages somebody psychologically to take any kind of 
instrument, a pen like Taki 183 used, uh, he had a technique where he cut a hole into his pocket and he put a marker in it <laughs> so that he could just write his name without right. being seen. So right. a pen, aerosol, whatever it is that's your instrument, what propels you to use it in that way? Fame. Because well, people partially no, but yes. no, but listen, because because when we were kids, we we're like, yo, you saw the tacky one eighty three piece, B. Yo, he up on <laughs> he up on the Upper West Side, son. Yo, B, he was on. I saw him on two hundred forty second Street. You know what I'm saying? He got down in the village. He's everywhere, dude. He's going all city. So it did come with a certain amount of fame, where all of a sudden these people were like, yo, I saw your name all over, B. You were everywhere. You're famous. So it came with this kind of like insta fame on top of the fact that look we're we're not really into stylized calligraphy yet. We're not really into really 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 uh beautiful lettering like Chaz was doing in LA, right? We're not. We're we're into just really getting up. Do you think it's different than that cuz cuz I don't know where you're going with this. I think it's that, but I think it's also because often the kids in these early days who were led to graffiti, it's because they didn't have an opportunity to paint on a canvas. They didn't have an opportunity yeah. to showcase themselves to become famous right. in a more traditional context because of lack of financial resources, whatever it is. And so I think that there is that aspect to it as well. But of course, the fame, the recognition, the need to be seen, mm -hmm. and that that I think is universal. But I think in this epicenter of graffiti, it also came from a lack of economic resources and access. Sure, and you have uh, you have museums. It's funny because it comes from New York City, which to me is the epicenter, the nucleus of art. You got the MoMA, you got the Frick, you got the Guggenheim, you got the Metropolitan, you got the Natural History Museum, you got all the museums. But these kids don't go to the museums. You know, besides the Met, nothing's free. Okay, so where are they going to go? They go to the train yards. They go to what's called the ghost yards up on 242nd, right? They sneak into the yards. What are they doing to get into the yards? To, to get on these giant steel worms, which are basically canvases, right? So they go, to these, they go to these yards to try to get up on the canvases. They'll do anything. First, you jump the fence. Then you got to cut the barbed wire. You know, then you got to get past the Doberman Pitzers, you know, the, the, the transit cops, the, the thugs, the basically thugs, right, who are manning the yards. But you do it so that, like you said, you can create art Create art so that when it pulls into the train station, wherever it is, 125th, 42nd Street, Times Square, people go, oh, damn, B. How did he get all the way there? Yeah, and like <laughs> your piece is everywhere. Yeah. Now you got a traveling art. You don't need to, you know, this is way before Banksy put his own work up, right? This is like, this is, I'm going to put my work up and have a traveling exhibit. So that was a really cool, unique thing. No one had ever done that before. And the kids, we, you know, the kids, and I was part of it to a, to a very tiny extent because I was getting up and I was writing my name in the subways. And these were, this is the time in the 70s when the canvas, the main canvases were the subway cars. And uh, they were really dirty, grimy cars. But it was cool because inside the cars, there were museums. You know, you would see mm. everybody. Oh, snap. Yo, there's G-Man. Yo, there's, there's Tracy, Tracy 168. Yo, you saw the Futura tag, bro? You know, it was everything. So it was like, it was kind of a cool place, too, because you would see these tags. And as the tags started to get uh, more sophisticated, you know, people got known for their style and for their hand styles and for, 
you know, their type of, which is like their typographical skill sets. And then eventually they started getting known for their pieces because let me just back up a little and say the throw ups, throw ups are just another way of saying a quick painting of letters that you get up quick. So if a train pulls into a station, you can and boom, you got your name up there really quick. You throw an outline, you fill it. And, you know, the train takes off. It's just, or whatever. You have a quick wave coming before the cops hit you, you know, with, with the blackjack. Um, but then you have the pieces. So you had artists who Which were, is short for masterpiece. Right, which is short for masterpiece. So you have real good artists. Like in my neighborhood, you had Zephyr, you had Futura, you had Dondi, you had Freedom. These were people like who were up, for me, that I saw all around the neighborhood. At Rocksteady Park, you had Bill Blast. You know, he did, you had Doze. You had all these really cool uh, characters. You had Scene. You know, Scene is unbelievable, man. And then, so those were like the real artists, artists, you know? And of course, you had the the real pioneers like Lee Quinones, who really took it to another level of artistry. And in fact, Lee Quinones and Fab Five Freddy, I think, had the first real graffiti show in 1979 uh, in Rome. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, and I think it was followed the next year in Times Square. They had a big, big graffiti show in 1980. But it started to be accepted into the art world. So it was tags became, you know, became, you, you know, you became the, the tagging guy to the letter guy, and you had all this, all of these places you could put it. You put it on handball courts, you put it on walls, but... I think the main canvas was always the, the giant train. steel worms, the trains. Yeah, and I love the way that you identified that as this insular gallery because, sure, the outsides of the trains mm -hmm. were tagged, but the insides and the photographs that I've seen, they're just so energized yeah. with with love, with adventure, mm -hmm. with anarchy, with a need for recognition. You just feel all of that when you look at these installation shots. And It's like a Jose Parla painting now. Yeah. Like he's layer, 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 graffiti, graffiti, right. graffiti. he started out as a graffiti writer. Right, exactly. But these were really a bunch of kids just going over each other. And sometimes you, you went over somebody, like as a sign of disrespect. Or a conversation. But I sure. do like the participatory nature of this, that it isn't just you put up a tag and it's going to be in that space in perpetuity. This is a sprawling, scrawling world. And your tag is not going to be the way that you left it maybe two seconds after you leave. Somebody else could take a pen or take spray paint and go over it or under it or could comment on something that you said. And so I love this diary aspect of it, that it's almost like I'm going to make my mark mm -hmm. wherever I am and using the train, I can be everywhere at once. Yeah, and that's what it is. It is really, you know, having your work up in lights. That's what, that's what getting up was. You know, when I wrote in, in New York City, like in the tiny, tiny way that I did it, uh, you know, I, I tried to write my name all over. Just one, just one, just one, just one. You know what I mean? That was, that was me. I wanted to go all city. And then, and then, of course, you had the counterpart of that for the people who were doing their preliminary work or who didn't really want to do the experiential real-life stuff. You had the black books. So black booking was a big scene, too. And I always had my what was called the peace book or the black books, which is your black sketchbook, and you do pieces in there. So you have your, your you write your, uh, you pencil it out, you write it in graffiti, you fill it, bubble letters, 3D, wild style, you know, Tracy 168, who was the creator of wild style, you all these different iterations. So it's really hard to cover 
graffiti in the the time that we're covering it now. But um, but you have to understand. We we have to collectively understand what a massive movement it was, and uh, what it eventually invariably became in in the street art world. Well, I wouldn't say it became street art. I think that street sure. art is an offshoot of You're it right. because Absolutely. graffiti is a thing unto itself that is still incredibly vibrant. Absolutely. We have people like Saber yep. and Risk, even though he doesn't do too many tags, he is a graffiti writer. Sure. And, I and think, an artist too, though. Oh, definitely. You can Sabre's, be more than one Sabre's thing. Saber's an artist too. And then you got like Mir One, who's an artist, but then to me, Mir has one of the most beautiful hand styles as a pure graffiti writer. You know what I mean? So you have guys who are like have such great style and at the same time you have guys who are also becoming just painters. And then you have guys who are painters who don't, you know, mess with tagging or, or hand style at all. Sure. I'm really interested in the rhetoric because we keep on saying graffiti writers. Mm. Isn't it interesting that in these early definitional stages that it wasn't a graffiti artist? And mm. I hear some people say that, but whenever I hear it, I'm like, oh, you don't really know the scene right. because it's a graffiti writer. Yeah. And that's not just because it is a world involved with text because street art involves text, graffiti involves characters. Mm. But for some reason, there is something emotional, psychological about the act of writing. Mm -hmm. And to me, what that's all about is just writing feels more organic, autogenous. It's something that you do. It's like freestyle rap. And I think maybe that was why writing was attractive to use as a word, as a way to define, rather than art, which feels precious and rarefied. Writing is something that is more universally seen as a democratic art form. Well, writing is also, you know, historically, obviously, is an art form. I mean, language, you know, came from symbolic painting, which became writing, right? So it's the same thing almost. I always say that your signature is a picture of you. You know what I mean? So these kids were doing pictures of themselves everywhere with their, with their hand styles. Uh, my grandfather was a famous letterer who did Felix the Cat and Prince Valiant. And so I grew up around a lot of really cool calligraphy and, and, and hand styles. And for me, when I entered the culture of writing and graffiti, it was very much what I was used to in my family. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, was, what, what we have to also talk about is we have to contextualize writing and graffiti in the elements of the pillars of hip-hop because graffiti is a pillar of hip-hop. You have emceeing, DJing, breakdancing, and graffiti. So that all came together. So if you see movies you know, like uh, Wild Style, yeah, they, they, they follow uh, Rocksteady Crew, the B-Boys, but they also follow some of the great, you know, graffiti writers and, and their journey. And then you see style wars and you see, uh, all, just all of those. And, and it's part of it. And usually it's also the cover of the, of the book and this and that, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. like graffiti is a, is a huge, uh, presence that a lot of people don't include. And when I watch and I love the evolution of hip-hop so much on Netflix. And I have to give a, a shout-out to that because my friend Russell Peters, the comedian, is one of the executive producers. But they're covering what typically everybody covers, which is emceeing, DJing, rapping, and their lives. Perhaps the social climate of the time, the politics. But there's never really too much talk about graffiti. It's really weird. 
like in general, because people don't care. Like it's still, the ultimate graffiti is still outlawish. You're still a cowboy. You're a renegade. And that's what it is. Like a real graffiti artist is interacting with public space on the highest level, right? How is my piece going to look there with that building and that tree and that Mm. bird? That is my favorite element, the site specificity. And I love the sincerity of some of these OG graffiti writers that you mentioned. Zephyr, I'm thinking, he refuses to put his work on canvas. He could Mm. make so much money, but for him, the point, the performance of graffiti is that interaction between the building and the tree and the tag. Zephyr always reminded me of uh, Henry Winkler, the Fonz. When I met met him, I was like, it's amazing how he's just Because he rolls up in a motorcycle. Yeah, he's just like this Jewish guy. You know what I mean? You're like, whoa, he's a Jewish guy. And that's another thing about graffiti. Look, I know because I was there, you know, from the culture. And I saw these guys. The graffiti world was different than the b-boy world. The b-boy world was populated with African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Boricua. You know what I mean? It was a real ethnic culture. There was white boys, but it wasn't really that. But graffiti, there was a lot of white kids. You know why? Because rock and roll kids were deep in the graffiti movement. And that, and that came from your Zephyr comment. Because a lot of those kids were white kids. They were, they were black, they were Puerto Rican, but there was a lot of white rock and roll, punk rock kids in the graffiti movement. So the graffiti movement was very different than uh, the MC movement, you know, where it took a long time for, for Caucasians to enter the scene and the b-boying and the DJing. But right off the bat, the graffiti guys, some of the pioneers were, were white guys, you know, from, from the Upper West Side and the Bronx and stuff like that. It was trippy. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing because the writing fascination of all of that calligraphy and the comic book style and the the graffiti artists were influenced by guys like, you know, characters like Von Baudet. Everybody wanted to draw a Von Baudet character. You know, everybody wanted to draw a Pink Panther character. So you did your piece, but then you hit him with the character at the end, right? (laughs) You know, there was definitely dope... uh, Everybody in the scene, Puerto Ricans, like Mr. Wiggles, I, I think he's incredible. But then I had like my friend uh, Isaac Rubenstein, who was you know an Italian Jew who who wrote West, and he started PNB Nation with my friend Zulu. You know, Zulu was a you know a Japanese black kid who's just in, was a wonderful writer, and and West was too. He was a Jewish Italian kid who was an incredible writer, and he wrote with FC, who flight you know, who, who was another incredible writer. Just all these people from different ethnic backgrounds that we didn't really have in other, other fields. It was a very weird uh, movement that was super important because what are these taggers doing? What are these writers doing? What are they doing? They're documenting the culture. And also they are documenting their own presence within that culture. And that to me is what I find the most valuable about graffiti is that it is so democratizing And it's not just for a select group of people who have the time and the resources to go to the Met. It's for anybody who takes the train. And in New York, the culture is that everybody takes the train. And so that's why I think that the real focus point, the locus of graffiti's origins happened in New York. And of course, cornbread is a notable example that happened in Philly, happened before, but that wasn't a movement. That was more of an isolated event. But the movement happened because of the urban planning, the realities of that city. Yeah, and the fact that, 
you know, it was that time and that place. And we were forgotten kids who were just on the street getting creative and allowing ourselves to get creative. Now, the other side of that, and we really need to talk about this, is that we have to we have to understand how criminalized this was. I was just going to ask you. That's so funny. So I wanted to know what was the risk at the time for kids being caught tagging? Forget about it. Like, I was beaten up by two undercover cops. So the cops used to go around uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they would tape their badges black. They would put black tape over their badges so you could never report them. So I remember hitting a wall uptown uh, with my friend, and it wasn't even a good wall, obviously, because, you know, I wasn't like some of my friends who were incredible. And these guys just came out of a cop car and with their with their badges taped in black. And I was like, what's up? And they grabbed us, threw us in the car, drove us down to Riverside Park, punched us in the stomach, and kicked us out. And don't you ever tag on the wall again, you idiot kid. Da-da-da-da. And, you know, it was like, what the hell just happened? For no reason, these two adults just beat us up. For the reason, the reason was obviously, you know, tagging or or writing our name. Um, But it was pretty lawless in that respect. There was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, You you could definitely go to jail. It was it was a very dangerous thing because you had not only the fact that you could get sentenced, but also the fact that you had, you know, cops who were really being thugs and hired thugs who were watching you know, properties like the, like the yards. I don't know how they did that, but they clearly hired a third party who are just straight thugs. And on top of that, you had the inherent dangers of the environment, right? So you had what's called the third rail. So in New York, in the subway systems, you have the third rail where all the power comes from, and there was just like a little wooden plank above it. Now, if you touch that third rail, game over, you're done. You're, you're, you're toast, because it'll electrocute you to death. And a lot of people did get electrocuted to death. And when we used to run through the tunnels as kids, as the street urchins that we are, that we were, we used to always have to jump back and forth or step on the wood of the third <laughs> rail, not to touch the third rail. Because you don't want to touch the third rail because you're dead. So you had, if you go to the tunnels, like the Freedom Tunnels, you had to go into the, into the tunnels and avoid the third rail, you know, the rats, the roaches, that's not that big of a deal. A lot of vagabonds, you know, people who are just uh, displaced, criminals, thugs, all kinds of people ran in those in those places. And the need for kids to get up in those kind of environments, deep in the tunnels where only riders would see it, that was crazy. Well, probably because that's where their audience uh, of peers that they respect, where they're going to notice. And so that's even more important. And I think it is highly integral to this movement to emphasize the risk that you just outlined so beautifully because that is unique to graffiti. And today, when so many street artists go around with their stencils, and I'm not denigrating that, but the level of risk that is associated with the world in today's climate is so different from the 70s and the 80s. And we need to see that because a lot of people will look at a graffiti tag and just see it as vandalism. But you also have to take into account the high, high levels, the extremism Mm. of the risk and the, the physical 
hard, just the hardships that these people might go through in order for you to see that tag. Yeah, you know, it was definitely a journey. It was very like the Iliad and the Odyssey. You're always going to the center trying to get get up and get out. For you know? me, it's performance piece. Mm-hmm. I really see graffiti as a performance because it is not just about the product. It is about the whole process of that product's production. Yeah, and also in, in the 70s and early 80s, the trains would get buffed. So they would take the trains, they would take these beautiful masterpieces, whether it was like a Dondi or a Lee Quinones or whatever, and they, w- or, and they would buff it. And then they came out with the, with the tag-proof, graffiti-proof trains. That was a real bummer. They were like the steel trains, and so kids couldn't write on it anymore because it would just melt, you know? It would just <gasps> melt. They figured out the surface, so you couldn't do it. So, you know, what did kids do? They started to, you know, ta- etch into it with their, you know, with their blades. And, and always a workaround, right? Like of course. When, when, you can't, <laughs> when you can't vandalize which... A lot of people called it vandalizing, or what I say, creating art. You figure out ways. Well, what does it. Jeff Goldblum's Jeff Goldblum say? Life finds a way in Jurassic Park, yeah. right? I mean, you do. If you have this desire, this passion, then you're going to work around whatever obstacles are in front of you. And I think it's interesting that we're doing this show right after the culture wars, which we did last week, because. It's the same climate. It is this conservative world and environment. And so for anybody to be a heterodox to that conservatism, that person is going to be, is going to receive some backlash. So we have in the fine art space, the Maplethorpes and the Serranos that we discussed. And now in a different kind of art world, I won't say it's, it's high versus low art, but in a digested by a museum world or in the scrawling, sprawling nature of graffiti, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to buck the system in similar ways. Yeah, and you would see, you know, when I was a kid and even now, like, remove graffiti, criminalize graffiti, like graffiti, you know, it was just this whole anti-graffiti movement that people were just so into. Like, you know, Koch, Mayor Koch, when I was a kid, was just everybody was so anti-graffiti and it was so funny right like I know, there was, clean up the city that was yeah, the language the that city, they used yeah. and so what is the inverse of that that graffiti is dirty and so yeah. i think language is very very interesting because it provides so many inroads and opportunities into figuring out what was happening so the writing versus the dirty and i don't see it as dirty and it's not like the tags were politically inflammatory they weren't aggressive they're typically names yeah and the the crazy yeah it it, it was it, you know you look at it now in retrospect and it's so crazy you got a bunch of kids who were really trying to do something passionate and artistic with their life right they're not they're not robbing they're not stealing i mean let me we there was a lot of maybe stealing which was called vamping vamping paints which you would steal uh aerosol paints from certain stores back in the days i did that myself and the problem with that, just as a little anecdotal thing, side note, but uh, when you would steal the Krylon paints, which is what we painted with, before things became so sophisticated with Montana paints and all these cool paints, but they had that little metallic ball. And I remember one time that I vamped a bunch of paint, and as I was walking out, I could hear the ball go, cooking, cooking. And I was like, oh, Gave no. You away. Oh, no. And the dude who was the manager grabbed me, and he's like, do you have any paints? And I was like, nah, B. And he was like, yes, you do. And when you like, say oh. B, what does that mean? Like, bro, boy, 
you know, homie, like friend. That's just what we said. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard that before. I've, I go back to a lot of nah bees when I recall my childhood because I feel like <laughs> every time I see video of myself at that age, I'm like, yo, B, it's crazy, B, you know what I'm saying? And if for some reason I talk like this too, it's weird, you know what I'm saying? I don't know why. Is that how you spoke? Yeah. I had that kind of weird affectation. And my friends did too. You know, we were, we all kind of had that weird affectation. You created a tribe. I just think it is so incredible and it's so culturally specific to the time and also to the place, but then it's transmuted into all of these wonderful fine art worlds, like the wild style that you discuss. That graffiti is really fascinating to me. It is just a foundation from which so many things have launched. Yeah, and like just to... You, you, you really can't, we, we don't have any time to really, really deeply get into it. But once graffiti went to Europe and that became global, what the French artists did and the, and, the, and the Dutch artists, and they put their spin on it, and then they brought it back to the States. And everybody had such a unique, interesting vision for the, the movement and the languaging of graffiti, what became piecing, what became burners what became heavens right heavens are what you do way high in the sky that's what they call them heavens because also if you fall while you're doing the piece you die you go to heaven so like you have all these different names right and all these different styles and all these different artists contributing but i love when graffiti went to europe because then you had that like classic european art historical spin on it then you had these realistic characters. Instead of having the really cartoony Pink Panther or Von Baudet. Well, that happened because of distance. Whenever we have a little bit of distance from something, sure. then we can contextualize it within our own framework. But since graffiti... I don't know if it's distance, though. What do you mean by that? Distance from the origin. Distance from the epicenter in New York at the time that it was first created in the United States. Just because we have a little bit of a removal of that well, experience. Well, we have... I don't know if it's the distance as much as it's just the fact that they're in Europe and they have, you know, like the French artists, you know, they're influenced by great impressionist painting and realistic, you know, great. Yeah, but we're influenced by realistic painting, too. I think it's because the initial moment of graffiti had been digested. And so naturally, the next iteration is going to be different. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> so about. No, I'm kidding. Let's finish up. You mentioned a lot of graffiti writers that yeah. you really admire. Let's both say two graffiti writers that people should look up. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, can, can I name new ones? Yeah, mine are Saber and Risk. Who are My they? two favorite. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so I would say I'm going to have to go East Coast because you're representing the West Coast. Yep. So I would have to say scheme and scene. Ooh, well, you know, scene and risk are very good friends now. So that's... Yeah, no, no. And, and they're both just incredible. Like just what their contributions were, their style. And I want to throw out a third and always Lee Quinones because Lee really in so many ways did so much artistry that I remember when I saw his work, I, I felt like, wow, it could be so much more than just letters and hand styles. That he handball was, court was just... Epiphanous. Yeah, and now you look at it and it's super duper crazy cartoony, like a little kid style almost, like in a black book. But still, for then, you were like, yo, he's using chiaroscuro, darks and lights, crazy characters. His work's so 3D, it's coming out of the wall and the wall's breaking. Like, what? Yeah. Like, you're just like, what? Like, what's going on? It was magical. Uh, and by today's standards, it's very soft, you know, it's, it's very, you know, 1.0. But that's only, we are only able to depart from 
the earlier model because of people like him, because Absolutely. of the work that he did. Absolutely, so he was a pioneer. He really was. And I'm going to add Lady Pink because women were also graffiti writers yeah, in its early she, days. She she was fine, but she wasn't. She <laughs> I wasn't. mostly mention her because she was a woman, and I think it's yeah, important to mention sure. that women were a part of this world. But stylistically, to me, you can't get better than Saber and Risk. And you can't get better than Mere One's hair, hand styles. You can't. Like, his hand style is the best hand style I've ever seen. I mean, there's obviously people who are so freaking good, it's crazy. And there's so many good art. Like, OG Slick is incredible. There's so many really great everything in the culture. And remember, this is still going. We're still in the longest-lasting artistic, historical artistic uh, movement. I hope it never ends. No, and it w- and never will. Because remember my initial thing, which is, I don't want to talk about prehistoric art. I don't want to talk about hieroglyphics. I want to just talk about where it really started with the epicenter of New York City with a bunch of kids in the 70s. But if you really want to talk about it in a deeper way, if we had like a 20-hour podcast, then we could go back to Lascaux, France, cave paintings. Sure, and, and you Pompeii. were so zoomed in, which I think is remarkable because you were there at the moment when it was happening. Sure. And I am so zoomed out because my childhood was very different. I did not grow up in New York at this time. And so for me, the zoomed out perspective of graffiti, this need to impress yourself in some way on your surroundings and the need for fame, the need for access, the need for recognition, this conversational aspect of the performance of graffiti, the mobility of it, that to me is enduring. That's going to last forever. And that's why when I painted my painting, Bua 420, as well as my other painting, The Artist, I call The Artist The Artist because it's a graffiti writer in the train yards in the late 70s with the cans, cans of paint, and you know, clad in his in his regalia of, you know, convert procads and and a Kango with his bomber jacket and his Lee jeans, covered in paint. And what I say is, why do I call it the artist? Because I'm circumventing any preconceived notions of what you think he is. He's not a vandal. He's not a hoodlum. He's not a rookie. He is a straight artist. Because that's what graffiti artists are. They're artists too. You know what I mean? They're a different kind of artist, but they're an artist. You know, we're calling photography an art. I mean, you've you've said that a million times. Graffiti, straight graffiti, not street art, street art as well, but straight graffiti artists are just artists as well. And that's why that painting, it was the first narrative painting of the culture where I'm actually painting the narratives of that part of the culture. And that's why I thought it was really important to name him the artist. Cool. Well, look, we do this because we love this. And all we ask is if you stop right now and you just write a comment, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is, just write a comment. Uh, Give us five stars. Don't not. But write a comment about the show and also leave us a comment uh, on our Instagram, which is Art Attack Podcast. Podcast. Yeah. Let us know what you like, what you want more of, and stay tuned for information regarding our 100th episode, which is right around the corner. We're going to do a live show, and the subject is going to be the intersectionality of art and hip-hop. Woo! Yeah. That is deep. I'm okay. going to have to start studying now. <laughs> I already love no, it. No, I'm kidding. Okay, guys. Thanks. Peace.